0: Everyone, um, if you would, join me for a word of prayer before we explore God's Word. Holy God, thank you for this opportunity today to gather with your people, to worship, to be formed by you. May we encounter you in this spoken word. May this spoken word be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word, Lord. Comfort us and challenge us. And may we leave today as people who are formed more into your image and marked with your compassion. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So we're not the kind of church that typically follows the lectionary every week. A lot of churches do. Um, But for some churches, for most churches, some version of this text that we read today happens during the rhythm of church. So at Bethany, we have six locations, and today we'll hear six different sermons on the same text. But last week, this text was the lectionary text for thousands of churches. So thousands of sermons last week on this very passage. And so there's no shortage of ways that you can interpret this passage. There's no shortage of ways to... uh, to explore and for God to speak to us through his word, There are plenty of ways to do that. And typically, I think how this sermon goes about the temptations focuses on this aspect. How might we mimic the way Jesus acts in the wilderness? He experiences temptation. We experience temptation. How do we act like Jesus? How do we mimic Jesus's life? Like, what tactics does he use to keep the faith in midst of temptation? I think this is typically how we approach this text. So everyone knows this, right? WWJD, what does it stand for? What would Jesus do? Like, maybe you had the, uh, the t-shirt or the bracelet growing up. Maybe you were more edgy and you had the tattoo that was temporary, right? You, you had these things. Some of you know the struggle. Okay, all right. We had these different markers that we had, WWJD. I had a sticker on my Bible. It was massive, this this big sticker. And so what would Jesus do? And this isn't a bad question, right? In fact, right after our passage today, Jesus is going to pop down to Nazareth. He's going to unroll a scroll, and he's going to read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus is going to do, right? WWJD, this right here, all this stuff. And we see him fulfill this prophecy in his life over and over and over again. It's all good stuff. But for us this morning, as we focus on Satan tempting Jesus three times in the wilderness, I want us to pay attention here and recognize that the temptations are not so much trying to challenge what Jesus is going to do, right, WWJD. Rather, what Satan is really trying to get at is WWJB. Who will Jesus be? Right? The question is, who will Jesus be? So turn stones into bread, bow and take up authority, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. In the ways that we're reading today, all these temptations are trying to cause Jesus to assume an identity that is not his. Right? That's what the temptation is trying to do. So to try to cause Jesus To exist and to exercise power in the way that Satan would use power, right? They try to subtly corrupt who Jesus is. And this is how Satan works most of the time, right? He works in subtleties. So think about it like this. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, if I took every face of every character in the movie and laid it out on a board and then said, all right, Choose the one who is the evil person in this lineup. You you had every face. Everyone would know who Satan was because he's the guy with the sunken eyes and like half-decaying face. I think in the movie, there's like a bug that crawls out of his mouth, something like that, or there's a snake. Typically, that happens. Every person in the room would know that guy's evil. So you see him walking down the street. You double-take. Okay, yeah, he's... He, he's evil, right? Everyone would know. But evil is rarely this obvious in its infancy. Right? Evil is rarely obvious this way. We rarely can see with perfect clarity the end result when we encounter temptation. This is still a bit distant, though. Like that, The example is still out here. What are the stakes to the kind of temptation Jesus is trying to tempt Jesus with? What's the weight? Like, how does this actually happen? This might better illustrate the point. I think, I want you to think about Satan's temptation like this. The first week I was in the States for college, two friends and I were driving on Signal Mountain in Tennessee, in Tennessee, pulled into a gas station, fill up my car, and I go to swipe my card, and the pump dies. And the lights kind of flicker off. So, kind of strange, I roll up to the next pump, go to swipe my card again, and the same thing happens. The pump dies. At this point, I'm looking around, and I look at the store window, and I see the gas station attendant with his hand on the pump switch. And then he tells me, and my two non-white friends, to get the F off his property. First week in Tennessee. I'm 18 years old. When I have experienced blatant acts of racism in the South and here in Tennessee, or in Seattle, sorry, those acts are plain for everyone to see. Right? There's nothing subtle about that. There's nothing subtle. There's nothing subtle about being called a racial slur or having access to things revoked because of who you are. It's obvious. The obviousness of this is just like how our movies typically depict the temptations of Christ, right? And and everyone, everyone knows that the guy with the rotting face is the devil. Everyone knows that you shouldn't do that. That's not a way to treat someone. We deceive ourselves, though, when we think that temptation manifests itself in such obvious ways in our day-to-day lives. We deceive ourselves when we think it's that obvious. Instead, the devil is much more slick. Temptation works more like microaggressions than blatant aggressions. So maybe you've heard this term, microaggressions, small, seemingly inconsequential acts that serve to emphasize otherness, based on a lie, the lie of white supremacy. And these are the things that actually bother me more than blatant acts of racism. Right? You, can, you can count and discount one act that's just so obvious, but other ones that are they, are they not? That's more like how temptation manifests in our lives. So this happened to Abby and I when we were in Seattle, here. Here. Abby and I went on a double date with another multiracial couple, and when the check came out, they were split along racial lines. Right? Inno- innocent mistake on the server's part? When we spent the whole meal together, so maybe, could be. But the assumption that makes this mistake possible is the thing that carries the weight. Like, that's the thing that really carries the weight. That's the painful part. So I'm pretty sure that the waiter would be horrified. Like, they they didn't know. They'd be horrified if they realized what had just happened. But this is more often, again, how Satan works in the subtlety, the subtlety at work, in our unconscious, in our naivety. So here, the seeds of racism below the surface are affecting the topography of our everyday lives. Again, it's pretty easy to deal with like a blatant thing here. It's much more difficult to deal with offenses that directly affect who you are, but then go unnoticed. So if someone says to a person of color, aren't you being a little sensitive here, right? Or that's only racist because you're making it racist. This is more akin to how Satan works in our lives. Through subtleties, that deform our ability to see others and ourselves as God sees us. This is how temptation works. This is how sin works. It's not really about transgress- transgressing a do or don't list. That's what was taught to me. Sin is this, so if you stay on this side of the ledger, you're good. Like, never cross over. That's what, you're, that's what sin is. That's how you live sinlessly but then you look at Paul and he says, by the letter of the law, he was blameless. Sin is really like an infection that corrupts us so that we're unable to recognize God's image and likeness in the world around us. It causes us to act in ways that are unbecoming of God. So this is more often than not, how Satan chooses to tempt us. Satan doesn't need to convince white people to get a white power tattoo. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to have you join a white supremacist group to infect with the disease of perpetuating racism, right? Joining the privilege and power. But he also doesn't need to convince people of color to respond to racism with extreme violence and think that justice by any means is godly. Instead, all Satan has to do is have white people see other people as weird or other, alien, foreign, invaders, and the seeds of dehumanization are there. And that's what makes the system possible. And all Satan needs to do for people of color is see white people as less than human because of the sins of their ancestors and Satan's temptation for people of color to become the same evil that was used to oppress them will begin to take root. This is uncomfortable. In the season of Lent, perhaps... This is something we're supposed to be drawn into, this uncomfortability through Jesus' work and journey in the wilderness. So, we've spent some time on preamble here, but I really want us to understand this. This is what is at stake in the temptations here, right? This is how Satan is trying to work. He knows that if he can get Jesus to stray from who he is, even if it's slight, he will have done enough. So don't miss this. The gravity of the temptations that Christ is experiencing here is hitting at his identity and trying to form his identity in a very particular way. A way that pushes back on the identity we see him take up in the baptism. This is what the temptations are. So Satan is trying to make Jesus question who he's supposed to be. W-W-J-B. Who will Jesus be? So flip to Luke 4. Let's look at the first temptation. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights experiencing temptation. And then Satan comes to him, verse 3, and says... If you are the Son of God, notice the question. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now again, there's plenty of ways to read this passage. But this morning, if you're using your outline, here's the first blank. I want you to key in on on Satan tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread as the temptation to self-feed. The temptation to self-feed. So when I was four years old, my parents, they planted five, uh, five cherry tomato plants along the side of our house. And me being four, I walk out, see a bright red tomato, pop it in my mouth. I'm going to switch to the third person so I don't feel as bad about this. Little Silas next, he goes and he eats all of one plant. And then the next one, and the next one. And the next one, I clear out all five plants, okay? Like, were they ripe, overripe, underripe? Doesn't matter. They're gone, okay? The plants are done. And so, I'm four. I mouth them down. And I didn't realize, you know, that my life is connected to the people and the community and the world around me. You just don't recognize that. So, you see something you like, eat it, move on to the next one. Oh, there it is again. Do it again, over and over and over. But here, one way to interpret what Jesus is being tempted to do is rely on himself to meet his own needs. So this might go over our heads a little bit um, because food in American culture has been reduced to primarily two things, nutrients and calories. A 2014 study noted that 46% of all American adults who eat, eating occasions is what it's called in the study, are done alone. 46% of this is done alone. Not so in other cultures. Even now, but especially in the ancient Near East, the food you eat is just as important as the people you eat with. Food and community go hand in hand. So to eat is a political act in this time especially, what what you ate, when you ate, how you ate, who you ate with, all communicated your value system. It was part of your identity. So think about all the times Jesus was criticized for eating with sinners and tax collectors, right? Make stones turn into bread? Of course Jesus can do that. Like John tells us that Jesus is the bread of life. We see him turn water into wine. In the, in the feeding of the 5,000, and in all the feeding stories, over and over, we have multiplying things happen. Jesus can create. And then the, evil, or then the evil seeds that Satan tries to plant here, though, is to get Jesus to be the kind of saver who treats himself when he experiences need. That's the temptation that, Jesus, that Satan is trying to tempt Jesus with, to treat himself when he experiences need. So he says, hey, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, feed yourself. You deserve it. You see, if Satan can convince Jesus to shift his focus from others to himself, to respond to his own, to his own needs, even though no one is around When that seed grows and Jesus finds himself in the garden of Gethsemane later on and wants to let this cup pass from me, the precedent has already been set if he has fallen to this temptation. So feed yourself now. Pass on the cup later. You know, at the end of the three temptations, we see that line where it says, the devil came back at an opportune time. When Jesus is on the cross, two robbers, two robbers on either side, multiple times in the story, the charge, the temptation comes back. And it uses this exact same phrasing. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself and save us too. Right? The temptation comes back there in the most vulnerable moments. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Feed yourself now, save yourself from the cross later. Satan is just trying to lay the groundwork here at the beginning of the story so that in the future, the seed of temptation will derail Jesus when it really counts. So, what if he eats by himself? But here's the thing. Jesus does not forsake who he is. He knows who he is supposed to be. He knows who his Father is. He lives and embodies the perfect communion between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We see this in his baptism. So when Jesus responds then by quoting Deuteronomy 8, Luke only has it to say, humanity does not live by bread alone. It cuts out the rest of the verse. Some of the other gospels include the rest. It says, humanity does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus knows that that same mouth was the mouth that spoke the world into existence out of nothing. That's what he knows. So Satan doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but he knows that if he can rock Jesus' identity just a bit, right, get him to forget who he is for a moment, who he's supposed to be, why he's here, Jesus might just fail to accomplish all the things that he can do. And so here we see Satan tempting Jesus with the temptation to be a self-feeder, to the neglect of others in his future. And Satan tempts us in the same ways. When it comes to the temptation to self-feed, Satan tempts Christians to forget that we are created to be in community. By causing us to privilege ourselves to the exclusion of anybody else. So it's a free country, right? We hear this. It's a free country. I can do whatever I want. When we think about freedom, we normally talk about it in ways that uphold individualism as primary, especially in the West. So I, as an individual, am free to do as I please. Like, we're all free, we're all free from all responsibility, especially from all responsibility from our neighbors. Like, they can do them, but I'm going to do me, right? This is what freedom is, the ability to do me, as we define it in our culture. But this understanding of freedom grates against how humanity was created to be. I don't have time to unpack everything here, but in Luke 3, does everyone see the long list of names? In Luke 3, we have a long list of names. This is known as a genealogy. We've heard a couple sermons in the last couple months about genealogies, talking about the names and all that stuff. The thing that's unique about Luke's genealogy, the thing that's special about this one, is that this genealogy happens in reverse. Typically, it goes from oldest to the present. This one goes from the present back to the beginning. So it's a reverse genealogy. Jesus gets baptized. There's this incredible scene of perfect communion, perfect relationship with God the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit. And then Luke writes this genealogy backwards, and he keeps going, he keeps going from Jesus, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then he ends it by saying, the son of God. And he caps that genealogy with the son of God. Recognize this. This is done to cause us to see that just as Jesus is the Son of God, God invites all of humanity into the relationship God shares within God's self, so that for Christians, freedom isn't freedom from responsibility, it is freedom for responsibility. It is freedom to be able to respond. All right, so we're freed to respond to God's grace to be response And then we're called in that ability to respond, to be responsible for our neighbors. So in Christ, our freedom doesn't make us less aware of our neighbors. In Christ, we are baptized with Christ to join in the stewarding of God's love in the world around us. And this is who we are supposed to be. this is why Satan tempts us to self-feed, to work, to meet our own needs without thinking about the ways in which God is calling his community to join you in your neediness, to join me in my neediness, and for ourselves to thrust ourselves into the hospitality of a community, right? That is the witness how hospitable we can be. So for some of us, especially if you are a highly driven, get things done type of person, you know, you move faster than most people, this temptation has real draw. I don't need anybody else. I don't have, I don't have a responsibility to anyone else but myself. I'm going to do me. This is the scope of the first temptation. Shift gears here. In verses 5 through 8, we see the second temptation, the temptation to self-authorize, right? So first temptation, temptation to self-feed. Next one, temptation to self-authorize. And this temptation is twofold. It happens in two ways. First, in this temptation, Satan tries to cause Jesus to compromise his identity in order to trick him into exercising authority in ways that counter God's ways. So he tries to have Jesus take up authority in a way that would compromise who he is. Remember, he's trying to get at identity. So to self-authorize in ways that would fundamentally alter the goodness of the character of God. This is what he's trying to do. Has anyone followed the college admissions cheating scandal that came up this week? Right? Couldn't miss it. It was pretty big in the news. This is a prime example of people trying to attain something while compromising their integrity in the process. Like, parents trying their best to help their kids get into college. We have many parents in the room. You want to do that, right? So the end isn't the problem here. But the way or the means by which the scammers use to gain advantages compromise the integrity of all the people involved and of the admissions process, right? If, if Jesus had bowed, if Jesus had bowed to Satan, his identity would have been compromised, just like how all the parents who have cheated their kids into college have revealed their true nature at this time. So there's more that could be said here, but for us this morning, I wonder if any of us are ever tempted to overlook something without questioning how that process might compromise our identity and our witness. Are there ways in your life, in my life, in our life, where you might know something, it's shady, right? It's a little greasy, but the end is so good that you've taken it upon yourself, right? You've self-authorized and overlooked morally questionable methods for personal and immediate gain. Have you ever been tempted to do this, right? Condone something that you knew was wrong, but you did it anyways because it could really help you gain more authority, right? More money, more prestige, more splendor. In this one, we see that he has shown all the kingdom in their glory and splendor. This is the temptation to self-authorize. But on top of this, here's the second part. Here's the second way this temptation works. And that's seen in the person of Satan. Don't miss that Satan has claimed authority over the world and is trying to pass off that authority on Jesus as if it's real. He's a fraud. He's, fra- He's posturing here. He's posturing to Jesus in this moment. So in this temptation, we see what happens when the temptation to self-authorize gets played out to its logical conclusion. If you succumb to the temptation to self-authorize, it might start small. We know this is Satan's MO, typically. But eventually you can get to the place where you become so confident in your view of the world, right? You become so confident in your ability to be the authority in your life, which then ebbs into the authority over everyone else's life. You become so confident that you weaponize your view over and against anyone else who thinks differently differently than you. Or you militarize your worldview to the destruction of those who are less than you in your worldview. So this is part of what happened this weekend at the Almore and the Linwood Mosques in New Zealand. This is part of what happened. Right, we had people murdered, injured, because a man, possibly men, with a worldview of white nationalism They felt emboldened in that view, and then that they authorized themselves to act upon that worldview to the effect of others. This was abhorrent. It was evil, right? It was despicable in every way, and in no way would God want this to happen. So make no mistake— There is no God-ordained season for something like this. We talked about seasons last week to intro this whole series. There is no God-ordained season for something like this. In Ecclesiastes from last week, we see that there is a season to kill, but that killing is not the killing of others. It's the killing of ourselves for others. It's the killing of greed, of racism, sexism homophobia, bigotry of every form, every kind, so that through love, God's presence might be made known. This is important to recognize when we're talking about seasons. In the wake of this tragedy, this past weekend, at various times throughout the history of the church, the church has succumbed to the exact same temptation. We have done the exact same things to impart a Christian worldview on the world in ways that are counter to the gospel. We have done that. So the temptation to self-authorize is a vision of the world that is not divine. Right? It shows how Satan has worked in the world before. In the slaveholding holding self, in the American self, One of the justifications for slavery was that on Sundays, they had church. And so they were saving their slaves, slave owners were saving their slaves' souls. And so then the treatment on the other six days of the week didn't matter. It balanced out, right? This is a worldview that's imparted. That's just the same actualization of the temptation to self-authorize. Right? This same temptation that happens here in Luke, we see this past weekend, and we've seen throughout Christian history. Right? It's not distant. This is us. It is in us. We have this temptation. So unfortunately, this same temptation exists today. But as Christians, we are to be known by our love, not the might of our hate. So the temptation to self-authorize is a common temptation in a world that is becoming ever more individualistic and ever more polarized. The temptation to self-feed, right? To only think about yourself. The temptation to self-authorize. To authorize and act upon your self-fed worldview. These two things bring us to the final temptation, and that is the temptation to self-glorify. The temptation to self-glorify. Self-feed, self-authorize, self-glorify. In verses 9 through 11, does everyone see where it says that Jesus was led to the pinnacle of the temple? The pinnacle. This is significant because many thought that the Messiah would arrive as a conquering hero and make Israel this great nation, like restore it to glory, right? Establish the glory of the past temple. And so the gravity here is that if Jesus had jumped and been carried by angels, the attention of this spectacle would have gained him an unbelievable following. Right? Everyone expected the person who was going to liberate Israel to arrive on the pinnacle of the temple, the Messiah to arrive there. So that's why he's brought there. And so if he throws himself off, gains a following, immediately what he's trying to do is co-opted by the views and the, uh, the, the desires of the following. But the fundamental truth is that God is humble. God is not this way. Jesus couldn't act this way because God is not this way. To announce his messiahship and gain the crowds by playing off of Israel, remember Israel, a nation that is occupied by a foreign nation, right? occupied by the Roman Empire, by playing off their fears, this would have given Jesus a glory that is actually just coming from the temptation to self-feed and self-authorize. Right? It's not... The glory he's meant to take up. So Jesus knew that the ways that people came to know him mattered. And it mattered to how people then would come to know the people of God. In my Pentecostal upbringing, we spent a lot of time seeking after the gifts of God, right? Lots of gifts language. And we'd oftentimes forget to recognize or seek the gifter of those gifts. If Jesus had succumbed to the temptation to self-glorify, people may have followed him, but the substance of that following, the substance of their following, would have been for the wrong reasons. So no, instead, Jesus is humble. Not in the sense that Jesus thinks less of himself. He doesn't diminish himself. God is humble in the sense that God's disposition to think of himself is to think of himself less. He doesn't think less of himself. He thinks of himself less. So one of my favorite theologians puts it this way. God cares so much about humanity that God would rather not be God than be God without us. God would rather not be God than be God without us. So when we see Jesus come in the incarnation, and we see Jesus arrive, take on the fullness of humanity, the fullness of God, God gives up perfect communion with God just so that we might be brought into that communion by God. The temptation to self-glorify This is what Satan is trying to disrupt through the temptations. Are there ways that you have felt tempted to act in such a way that might get you attention and glory at the cost of who you have been created to be? At the cost of who you've been created to be. The temptation to self-glorify. This is the final temptation that Christ faces in the wilderness. So the temptation to self-feed, the temptation to self-authorize, the temptation to self-glorify. Notice the progression, right? The progressive temptations that he, Satan is leading Jesus through. The temptation to create a worldview that puts yourself alone at the center of it. The temptation to impose that worldview on the world around you. And then the temptation to gain a following because of the worldview that you've imposed on the world around you. Three steps, three progressive temptations. This is what Satan is trying to do in these three moments. Again, we've read 40 days of temptation happened previously. We're told about these three days. The temptations aren't a story about someone with really strong willpower. I think sometimes we say that, right? He just really endured a lot. And if you get your will, if you train yourself, and you get your will, uh, like, boasted up or boosted up, you can do the same thing. And part of that's true. But this story is much bigger than that. It's not just about one man's stand against evil, in terms of just waiting out, right? There is real evil in the world. And in this story, this story is meant to show us how Satan subtly works in our lives. The the subtleness of, or the craftiness of, Satan's work. I recognize that today has been a heavy Sunday. Both in terms of concepts, we've gone through a lot, but also in terms of content, and also the, the weight of the things we've talked about. We've covered a lot. And we don't do this often, but this morning, as we respond, I'd like you to group yourselves into groups of two, three, four, just small enough, and share if there is a temptation that resonates most with you in your current season, or if something else that was provoked in you stands out from the way we have read and from the way that we hope God has read us. After a short time of sharing with each other, pray with each other. There might be a way that you um, were impacted that has nothing to do with anything I've said. Share and pray. Because God is here for you today. Today. And also, if the evil manifested by Satan's temptations this weekend in New Zealand are heavy on your heart, share and pray. Let us mourn with those who mourn and comfort those in need of comfort. And that may just be an ear. I'd be remiss if I didn't cause us to recognize that this tragedy is also not the only catastrophe that has happened this week. Now, I read about a shooting in Brazil. There's unspeakable horrors happening in China right now. Like, really? There are things that have filtered out of our news cycle that still are not resolved. Like, just because it's not in front of us doesn't mean it's not there. The reality of evil is around us. And friends, this is the world we live in. But notice one more thing from the text. Jesus is baptized. It says he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he is led into the wilderness. He endures the temptation, and the last verse here, we included, verse 14, is he goes to Galilee, and he is still full of the Holy Spirit. The empowerment of God in our lives, the Spirit of God with us in our lives happens in the wilderness, and it happens as we are in our daily lives grinding, as we're in Nazareth, as we're in Galilee, as we're in the wilderness, and as we are born in baptism. God is with us through all of the seasons. And so friends, obey the Lord, and let's respond to the Lord in prayer. If you would like prayer specific with, um, with Joni and Kurt over here in the corner, there's, you don't have to do the group thing. Uh, but I encourage you, share your life, at least some of your life, with others this morning. Let us, let us be, let's be the body of Christ to each other. Let's be the church that God calls us to be. We'll pray and then we'll, um, we'll close. I'll pray for us and then we will break off. God, thank you for this day. And may your word read us. May you fill us with your love and may your spirit be with us as we share our lives together, the ways that you are speaking to us and may we minister to each other and receive you as gift from people who are like us and who aren't like us. And we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.